Bob's Bombshells, Disney CEO Iger on Star Wars and disappointing George Lucas. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And I say it's a bonus episode because we already put up an episode of Virtual Legality today. But if you're familiar with the Hogue Law YouTube channel, you know we love our Star Wars. As a matter of fact, I've told this story before, but it was our last Jedi blog posting on the Hogue Law legal blog, if you can believe it, in December of 2017, that one Wound up popularizing that blog and popularizing the idea of doing a YouTube channel. You can see the video version of that essay on this channel from almost a year ago now, I believe, uh, called uh, The Last Jedi, Luke Skywalker, and Heroism in the Age of Trump, if you're at all interested in my thoughts on Last Jedi. But suffice it to say, it's a big news day for Star Wars, and a news day I wasn't expecting, as Disney CEO Bob Iger has revealed certain aspects of his book to The Hollywood Reporter and others, and it is fascinating what has happened regarding Disney Star Wars, what is happening right now. We have seen certain things happening with respect to solo bombing, with Galaxy's Edge not having the number of people that Disney had expected, and as a longtime Star Wars fan, as a longtime Disney fan, this is the conflagration, the combination of business and law and creativity and intellectual property that really gets me up in the morning and makes me excited to talk about things. So you're getting two episodes of Virtual Legality today. I hope you don't mind. Let's dive into the Hollywood Reporter article. Bob Iger reveals George Lucas felt betrayed by Disney's Star Wars plans. Now as background, we know bits and pieces of this story. We know George Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012. We had heard that he had transferred outlines of his stories. We had seen the 60 Minutes report in which he called Disney white slavers, discussing his betrayal at what Disney had done with his beloved brand. But we haven't heard really from anyone internally at Disney about this friction, about this consternation from the man who invented the Star Wars universe. And this story is fascinating. From a corporate law and messaging standpoint, it's fascinating that it's coming out right now. It's coming out three months before the launch of what they are marketing as the end of the saga. Whether or not that holds true, I have my doubts, especially since they have intellectual property that is going to be worth something even after the sequel trilogy gets done with it. But they are marking it as the end of the saga, and this has the possibility of really kind of adding to the friction that the Star Wars fan base has already experienced. So let's take a look at what's actually said here. It is really, really interesting. The Disney CEO writes about the disappointment of the franchise creator in his new memoir, The Ride of a Lifetime. While Disney's revival of the Star Wars franchise has been met with widespread success, and again, at some level, if you're going to get these articles, if you're the Hollywood reporter, you're going to get this access, you're going to be able to report on these things, You have to say things like this, right? And certainly, even The Last Jedi made more money than it took to make it. It made more than $1.5 billion. That's a good chunk of change. Actually, I think it made $1.3 billion. But it was a success in kind of a normative, quantitative approach to, to understanding success. It, however, was significantly less successful than The Force Awakens. The solo follow-up that did follow up that film had major, major issues. Galaxy's Edge has had problems. Obviously, Lucasfilm has basically dropped all of the A Star Wars story approach to making movies in light of what has happened. 
And I will tell you as a corporate lawyer, these aren't the steps that a corporation takes if it is thrilled with what has happened to the intellectual property. It is slowing down. It is reevaluating. What you aren't seeing is it isn't making statements out there in public that says, we think this was a mistake. We think X director was a problem. We think The Last Jedi should have been done differently or The Force Awakens or Rogue One or anything else. You won't see that from a publicly traded corporation because you can't see that from, from a publicly traded corporation. The job of the CEO and chairman like Bob Iger is basically to put a strength behind whatever the position of the Disney company is as of today. And in this particular case, whatever, whatever mistakes had been made, they made, were made in the past. And we have to move forward and we feel that we have a strong baseline for our intellectual property. That's what makes this really interesting. They're almost clearing the decks of prior frictions, of prior problems. They're establishing here, Bob Iger is establishing here, what happened before and the lessons that he learned, almost as an indicator that they won't happen again. But regardless of whether the Hollywood Reporter says the Star Wars franchise has been met with widespread success, let's press on. In the book, Iger reveals that Disney purchased Lucas's outlines for three new movies when it made a deal to acquire Lucasfilm in 2012, although that purchase was in part made out of a sense of obligation, it is suggested. We decided we needed to buy them. He, Bob Iger, writes of the decision made with studio head Alan Horn. Though we made clear in the purchase agreement that we would not be contractually obligated to adhere to the plot lines he'd laid out. Let's take a step back. I'm a corporate lawyer. I negotiate mergers and acquisitions. I negotiate purchase agreements, asset purchase agreements, equity purchase agreements, and I describe covenants, promises that each party makes to each other about what's going to happen at the closing in terms of the conveyance of the assets or the equity, what's going to happen after the closing. So what this looks like in all likelihood is that George Lucas had these ideas for the next trilogy. He wanted to sell Lucasfilm. He was done making movies. He decided that Disney was the best place to move him, but he's the founder of this company. He has total control. And when you're buying a company from a founder-led initiative, you have to deal with a lot more than when you're just talking about buying a company that's owned by a whole cadre of people. Because those founders, they spent their blood, they spent their sweat, they spent the time they could have had with their children on this baby, on this project. And so you have to recognize if you're the buying agent, if you're the buying corporate lawyer, that you have to assuage the emotions of this. This is a big moment for people that are selling this company. And a lot of times that's going to come with idiosyncrasies. In the case of Mr. Lucas, it looks like one of those idiosyncrasies was, hey, look, I have spent the last maybe couple years writing outlines for what I think the future of Star Wars, maybe the finale of the Skywalker saga should look like. I'm going to hand those over to you. They say, okay, great. I wouldn't be willing to sell this company if I wasn't handing these outlines over to you. This is part and parcel of the deal. They say, we decided we needed to buy them. We needed to make the founder happy. I see this all the time. However, our covenants say, hey, we're taking these from you. Absolutely. We're taking them. They're important to us. We love you, George Lucas. But just so we're clear, in writing, on the four corners of the document, we don't need to make movies off of these. And George Lucas says, yeah, okay, I understand. But I'm George Lucas. My name's going to have value in selling the rest of your Star Wars movies. At the back of my mind, I'm thinking, sure, you're probably going to use these because that's important to have a sense of continuity among the films. So we have two different, we have essentially a, a non-meeting of the minds as to what is going to happen. But contractually, George Lucas agrees, yeah, you're not obligated to use them because this deal isn't going to get done if I'm trying to exert creative control over the largest entertainment company in the world. Continuing on, as it turned out, Disney and Lucasfilm didn't follow Lucas's lead for the new movies. A decision Lucas discovered, discovered's an interesting word there, when Lucasfilm head Kathleen Kennedy and Star Wars The Force Awakens writers J.J. Abrams and Michael Arndt 
met to discuss the new trilogy and specifically the 2015 installment, which is The Force Awakens. George immediately got upset as they began to describe the plot and it dawned on him that we weren't using one of the stories he submitted during the negotiations. Now, I think that should be read as we weren't using any one of the stories he submitted during the negotiations. He submitted one story in three parts. We are not using that story. George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we would follow them. I will tell you right now, he was not silly. He was not stupid. He had been in the business of Hollywood for a long time. A tacit promise was made. And yes, it was made from a corporate lawyer's perspective in a manner that could easily not be an obligation going forward into the future. But you have those handshake deals. You have those breakfast meetings. You have those discussions with the founder that says, we are going to take care of this thing for you on an understanding that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And then you go a different direction. You should not be surprised when the founders get very, very upset. George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we'd follow them, and he was disappointed that his story was being discarded. I'd been so careful since our first conversation not to mislead him in any way, and I didn't think I had now, but I could have handled it better. Now, this is kind of passive-aggressive defensiveness. I don't really blame Bob Iger for having this position, but if he was misled, then you did the misleading, Mr. Iger. And so you say, I'd been so careful since our first conversation not to mislead him in any way. The best way to read that is that I had been so careful not to expressly make the promise that we would use these things in that fashion. I am sure he led George to believe that by selling the scripts to them or selling the outlines to them with his company, that Disney was going to take at least every commercially reasonable effort to make those movies. And in fact, they dispatched with them almost immediately. On this time frame, he sells it in 2012, and they are meeting to talk about The Force Awakens maybe in 2014, maybe as early as 2013. They took those outlines and they threw them in the trash. So there wasn't a commercially reasonable qualification on the requirement to use those outlines. There wasn't anything on the Disney company to use them. And he says, I'd been so careful since our first conversation not to mislead him in any way. I see that as I didn't make the express promise. Obviously, George thought there was some kind of agreement that they would at least try with his outlines, and he felt betrayed. Added Iger, George felt betrayed, and while this whole process would never have been easy for him, this is a founder giving up his baby, we'd gotten off to an unnecessarily rocky start. Now, as far as I can tell from context here, this is actually Bob Iger admitting a certain amount of fallacy on his part, a certain amount of mistakes that he had made. He says he could have handled it better. He said we'd gotten off to an unnecessarily rocky start. He's right. This was always going to be an issue of personality. Anytime a founder sells a founder-owned company, there's going to be separation problems. There's going to be instances where they want to go back on the deal. There's going to be emotion I, as a corporate lawyer, have sat on calls, on business calls with multiple millions of dollars on the line where people have cried and you feel really bad. You feel sympathetic. Sometimes those people have been my clients and you feel really bad. Some of the, sometimes those people have been the other side's clients and that happens. You wrap yourself in these businesses that you've created and there's no question that George Lucas was wrapped up in this company. He felt betrayed because there was some kind of leading on by the Disney company. That's why he goes on 60 Minutes. That's why this whole picture comes out. But it gets worse. Things didn't improve when Lucas saw the finished movie, The Force Awakens. Following a private screening, Iger recalls, Lucas didn't hide his disappointment. He was very angry. There's nothing new, he said. Side, sidebar, 
he was absolutely right, right? The Force Awakens is a greatest hits remix of various aspects of uh, A New Hope, definitely, but also Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And everybody knew it coming out of that theater. Even the people that could accept it, like myself, knew that it was a greatest hits remix and liked it for that, but it certainly wasn't trying to expand the universe in any tangible fashion. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him, George Lucas, to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visual or technical leaps forward. Here's Bob Iger. He wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under to give ardent fans a film that felt quintessentially Star Wars. The pressure we were under. That's an interesting context for a company that buys the Star Wars brand in 2012 and gives itself from purchase of Lucasfilm three years to release a brand new motion picture in the Star Wars universe that is going to bear the episodic number of this mainline, at one point, most valuable intellectual property in the world. They gave themselves three years, and it wasn't even that long, because if you recall, The Force Awakens actually got delayed. And so they didn't even give themselves that long. They ran into bumps in the road after throwing George Lucas's outlines in the trash. And then he says, hey, this is just the same thing. It's X-Wings. It's a Death Star. It's a desert planet. What are you even doing? He says, and Bob Iger admits, he wasn't wrong, but he wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under, which is entirely self-imposed. This This section of the book is everything that ardent Star Wars fans, as they are described here, have been saying about the sequel trilogy since the start. There is no there there. There's a hollowness there because they felt pressure to get something out as fast as possible with X-Wings, a desert planet, some lightsabers, and some Death Stars, and George Lucas rightfully objected. Now, George Lucas gave us Jar Jar. He gave us elements of the prequels that weren't good. He gave us bad acting, but he ultimately gave us a structure. He gave us new things. He gave us Padawans. He gave us the structure of the Jedi Order. He gave us a, something new creatively in the universe of Star Wars, something that is still entirely lacking in the Disney sequel trilogy Star Wars environment. And he knew it. Bob Iger says he wasn't wrong. And as you'll note here, there's no discussion of The Last Jedi because we're talking about the 2015 time frame. But I don't know that there's any discussion of The Last Jedi or what has happened in the sequel trilogy since in this book. It hasn't come up in any of the articles that I have seen. The problem Iger suggests is that Lucas didn't fully appreciate what Lucasfilm and Disney was trying to do with the new trilogy and specifically The Force Awakens. We'd intentionally created a world that was visually and tonally connected to the earlier films to not stray too far from what people loved and expected, Iger explained. And George was criticizing us for the very thing we were trying to do. They repeated a new hope in a different light and with a more hollow political structure and stance for the galaxy. And Bob Iger is defensive about the fact that the creator of this universe called them on repeating the same storyline in a fashion that doesn't make any sense. That you were so, so focused on recreating a Rebels versus Empire plotline that you didn't care how you got there. And you didn't care how the plot made sense, or in this case, didn't make sense. You didn't bother to even try to elaborate on it or explain it further in the sequel that followed The Force Awakens. And then you are surprised that George Lucas is upset that you threw his outlines away and is disappointed that you repeated his great life's work from 1977 with barely a change in names to separate it from that great film. 
In retrospect, Lucas's complaints mirror some of those from the vocal minority of Star Wars fandom upset about the direction the franchise has taken since Disney's purchase. Again, we'll point to this top of this video where we discuss Hollywood Reporter and others getting access to these kinds of quotes and things of that nature. Vocal minority, we'll see how that goes. Certainly those folks that are upset with the direction of the Disney Star Wars franchise appear to have the better of it so far. We'll certainly see how sales go for uh, The Rise of Skywalker, which I will be attending because I'm interested in seeing what happens. I'm not a boycotter. Uh, I've loved Star Wars my whole life. I will check it out and you'll hear from me in post-mortem form or maybe other forms on this channel uh, because I obviously do care about this universe and I care about what Disney's going to do with it in the future. But Lucas's complaints mirror those of a vocal minority while Iger says stays away from agreeing with the criticisms in the book he had accepted that disney's plan of releasing a new star wars movie every year might have hurt the property we were releasing movies too fast obviously i think that's a point that we can talk about on the internet outside of virtual legality but with the marvel cinematic universe releasing three and sometimes four movies in any given 12-month period it is hard to believe that what was once the biggest intellectual property in the world can't sustain a film a year if it's done with care, if it isn't done rushed because of self-imposed pressure, and if it isn't done completely against what the creator of the entire series would have done. You don't have to do exactly what George Lucas did. By God, get a director, get a scriptwriter. I don't mind any of these things, but pay attention to the man whose universe sprung out of his mind. It's, it's absolutely crazy to have a living asset like that and just ignore it. And I certainly think George Lucas was advised uh, by anybody in his circle that Disney would be silly to just ignore him after he sold them the company. And Bob Iger and the rest pulled the rug out from under him. And that's the betrayal. That's the disappointment. Now, one of the other reasons that I wanted to talk about that you might not be seeing uh, Mr. Lucas talking about this sale at all or what he feels about The Force Awakens uh, is on uh, is on Reddit. This is where I found the, the clip from the book. This is actually uh, a Reddit subboard called, I think it's Saltier Than Crate, uh, which is a reference to the planet in Lost Jedi that, uh, Last Jedi that's made out of salt. Uh, and it's someplace that I check out from time to time. It can get a little much in terms of negativity on Star Wars, uh, but they raise a lot of good points. And they certainly had this clip that I found very interesting, certainly from a corporate law perspective. And it says, even though he had issues with the film, I thought it was important, I being Bob Iger in this context, for George to be at the Force Awakens premiere. He didn't want to come at first, but Kathy, presumably Kathy Kennedy, with the help of George's now wife, Melody Hobson, convinced him it was the right thing to do. Among the last things we negotiated before the deal closed was a non-disparagement clause. I asked George to agree that he wouldn't publicly criticize any of the Star Wars films we made. When I brought it up with him, he said, I'm going to be a big shareholder of the Walt Disney Company. He got paid in shares of Walt Disney stock. Why would I disparage you or anything you do? You have to trust me. I took him at his word. Now, there's a bunch of inter interesting things happening here. The first thing that is not interesting is that they were trying to negotiate a non-disparagement clause. Whenever you buy a company from someone else, there's three things that you're going you're gonna to want to get if you're going to continue in the business that you're buying. You're going to want to get a non-competition agreement, which says, hey, you're selling me the company. And to some extent, you're the brains. You are the company. I need to make sure that you don't start a competing company across the street the day after I pay you $4 billion. So you're going to promise not to compete with us for a set period of time, generally five years on the sale of a company. And even in California, the sale of a company is one of the exceptions that they allow to have a valid non-competition provision. The second thing that you're going to do is you're going to sign a non-solicitation provision, which is very similar to a non-competition provision, but it's basically going to say in some fashion, 
You are not going to steal our customers. You're not going to steal our vendors. You're not going to steal our employees or our consultants for a period of time. Probably the same five years. It depends on the contract. Finally, you're almost always going to have a non-disparagement clause, especially when you're talking about creative endeavors. And it basically will say, once we have signed this up, it's very often mutual. You won't say anything bad about us and we won't say anything bad about you. That's part and parcel to the money we're paying you is that we don't want you out there negating the value that we purchased. And in the same respect, we're not going to say bad things about you. We're not going to knock the prequels as soon as we release the movies, although they can do it a little bit opaquely, as you've probably seen in the marketing of The Force Awakens on. We're not going to knock you in what you've done. You're not going to knock us in what we've done. Now, the interesting part about this particular quote is that he actually says, I'm going to be a big shareholder. Why would I disparage you or anything you do? You have to trust me. That's right. His incentives are aligned as an owner of the Walt Disney Company to not disparage them. To the extent he disparages them and depresses their stock price, he loses money. So he's right. He has incentive to not do that. But what's really interesting is the CEO of Disney at the end of this says, I took him at his word, which means to me, reading it as a corporate lawyer, that they didn't get a non-disparagement clause, which is really fascinating about this because he clearly didn't like The Force Awakens. I strongly suspect he didn't like The Last Jedi. And he has held to his word. He has held to trying to maintain the value of his Disney stock and just generally being an honorable fellow. Because if he has these feelings, I haven't heard them. He did have the white slavers comment about Disney in general, which is disparaging, but it's not disparaging about the Star Wars films that they have made. I haven't heard anything about Force Awakens or Last Jedi. I think the one quote we have on Last Jedi is that he says it was beautifully made which the cynical among us can read as, oh, you can't say anything better than here's some good cinematography. You're not talking about the story or anything else. But it is interesting that this major multinational entertainment company would allow a $4 billion to leave their bank account without getting a non-disparagement clause of of how they were going to use uh, this intellectual property. And so you have to wonder, you have a quote like this, if they didn't get that non-disparagement provision, will George Lucas wind up speaking out at some point in the future. In particular, will he wind up speaking out after The Rise of Skywalker comes out and talk about what they are describing, Disney is describing, as the end of the Skywalker saga? This has just become significantly more fascinating, both to the Star Wars fan in me and the corporate lawyer in me. And Disney is going to continue to be wildly interesting to observe as Disney Plus comes out and they try to sell the Mandalorian and they try to get this new ride out in Galaxy's Edge and whether people will come back to Disneyland and Disney World and what the future for Star Wars holds now that the Game of Thrones writers and Ryan Johnson potentially are in charge of that series. What is Star Wars going to look like in five years and in 10 years? I don't think anybody knows. But I think Bob Iger is getting out in front of some of the controversy and potentially some of the controversy that is going to envelop the rise of Skywalker by having these quotes, talking about all this friction, talking about the fact that George Lucas wasn't on board with what they did. It's a very, very interesting set of affairs. And because he's the CEO and chairman of Disney, he probably has pretty close to carte blanche on releasing this kind of information. But Disney would have had to have some say before he did so. He's not the God King emperor of a public traded company. And it will be interesting to see if he gets any backlash for being this candid about what is an ongoing product and service line that they are trying to sell, not just through December, but beyond. This is a fascinating story. If you like talking about pop culture, you like talking about business and law, we do a lot of talk about Star Wars, the MCU, Disney, video games, electronic software, and else. Please like, please subscribe, please share with your friends. Tell them that we're here. We love that. 
Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.